Morning. I don't know how many of you had heard that uh, poem by Amanda Whitney, but I wanted to bring up again the, uh, the last stanza of the verse. The poem was entitled, The Bravest Man I Ever... Uh, bravest Man I Know. And she writes in the last stanza, she says, The bravest man I know is the man who fights so another man can have the taste of sweet freedom. Not fighting only for his own benefit, but for many others all over the world, fighting to make this world a better place. That's the bravest man I know. You know, when we consider Veterans Day, uh, we truly are celebrating a a day and a a weekend, uh, not just where many of us leave town and go on vacation, as some of us have, but it's also a time where we recognize that freedom is not free. And that the privilege that we have to gather here as Christian men and women and, and the boys and girls that are hearing uh, the Gospel right now in their Sunday school classes, that blessing comes at the expense of soldiers who have protected our freedom. Amen? So I want to thank again all the veterans and all the present uh, men and women of the armed forces. We thank you for your service. And we recognize that we are very much here today because of your sacrifice. And this brings really uh, brings us to uh, a transition into the title of, of today's message and the theme of today's message. The title here today is A Prayer for Undeserved Relief. A Prayer for Undeserved Relief. Just as we, uh, as Americans, we, we really just don't deserve the, the great bounty and prosperity that we've had over the, over the hundreds of years of this country's existence. We have been blessed on so many levels. Well, today, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, is going to speak about some undeserved blessing, undeserved relief that is about to come to the people of Israel. Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. And this will be, uh, we're continuing our our study in in the book of Daniel. This will be our last study in Daniel for the calendar year. We're going to take a break for a little bit and come back to it in January. So Daniel chapter 9, we're going to begin in verse 1 today and go through verse 19. Daniel 9, beginning in verse 1, we're going to take it step by step today. Daniel writes this. It says, Daniel, or excuse me, Daniel 9, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes." Okay, where are we in time again? We always ask that question with Daniel because in every successive chapter it seems that we're moving around in the time frame of the Babylonian captivity. Here we are, Daniel writes, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes. Well, that gives you an indication that something's happened in Babylon. There's no longer a Babylonian king. There is now a king of Media in particular, of Medo-Persia, 
the second kingdom that came after Babylon as we've been learning about these great kingdoms. And so the year that we're looking at is approximately 539 B.C. In 539 B.C., about that time, King Cyrus of Persia came and conquered Babylon, conquered Belshazzar of Babylon. And as King Cyrus came through of Persia, he left in place in the city of Babylon a a, a viceroy, a, a prince, if you will, and they called him a king, King Darius the Mede, the son of Ahasuerus. And he left him there in Babylon and continued on to carry out more military exploits. So in the year 539 B.C., you have a changing of the guard. And Cyrus appoints Darius to rule over Babylon. It was a time of national upheaval. The Babylonian people were in chaos. They had just been conquered. And they had held captive the Jews for many, many years. Now, the Jews had by that time very much assimilated into the culture, but were nevertheless considered very second-rate citizens. And so now, not only were the Jewish people under second-rate to Babylon, but now they were second-rate to also Persia. So they were way down at the, at the bottom, very much third-rate citizens in a country that has now been twice conquered. Jerusalem, that is, has now been twice conquered. The people of the Jews, conquered by Babylon, now conquered by Persia. Of course, Persia was also the ones who would let them go home. But we'll get to that in just a moment. And lo and behold, Daniel is here taking stock of the situation. The fact that not only was he taken out of Jerusalem to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, but now they've been conquered by a new king. Now they're under a new rulership. And lo and behold, Daniel realizes in the course of that time, in that day and age, he realizes that prophecy was unfolding before his very eyes. Cyrus of Persia had conquered Babylon. And as Daniel looked back, it mentions, by the way, in verse 2, what does it say? It says, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books, plural. That is to say that not only did he read the book of Jeremiah, the prophet, but he also must have been reading some other scriptures. I submit to you he was also reading the book of Isaiah. Because in the book of Isaiah, it is mentioned at the end of Isaiah 44, in the beginning of Isaiah 45, that a man named Cyrus would come and conquer Babylon and would eventually let the Jews go free. And so Daniel is here. He's in this moment in 539 B.C. and he's reading this on the Isaiah scroll. He's reading that a Cyrus would would come. Isaiah, who wrote some 200 years prior. And he's reading it. And he's saying, this has just happened. And he's looking at the Isaiah scroll. And then he opens up the scroll of Jeremiah. And he sees something else. You see, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet had said, years ago, that there would be 70 years, 70 years of desolation in Jerusalem. 70 years of exile. And Daniel realized right then and there, in 539 B.C., that that time period was about to come to an end. And this gave Daniel great hope. Here he is, twice conquered, but sitting in Babylon, realizing there's hope. 
The prophecy of Jeremiah, or the prophecy of Isaiah and Cyrus has come true. The prophecy of Jeremiah is, is right before our eyes. He knew well that the Lord was at work. But he also knew why Israel had gone into captivity in the first place. She had gone into captivity because of her great sin. And Daniel had seen it with his own eyes. He was in Jerusalem when it happened. All of it had unfolded just as Jeremiah the prophet had said it would. Notice what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 25. This is perhaps a portion of the Jeremiah scroll that Daniel read. This is what Jeremiah said. I, Jeremiah, have spoken to you, Judah or Israel, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all His servants, the prophets, but you have not listened. They said, repent now everyone of his evil way and his evil doings. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them. And do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord. Verse 8, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you've not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, he will, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, against the nations all around, and I'll utterly destroy them. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for seventy years." Daniel's excited. The 70 years appear to be coming to an end. But he's also a little bit trepidatious. Because he knows that the very reason Israel went to Babylon was for her sin. And yet as he looks around and he sees his fellow Jews, he doesn't see much change. He doesn't see much of a change of heart. And so he's concerned that his own countrymen have not learned their lesson. Israel was sent into slavery because of sin. And even now, 70 years almost finished, it could hardly be said that the Jews had learned their lesson. And so what does Daniel do? He prays. He prays. Why does he pray? Because having been reminded again of Jeremiah's prophecy, he knows, he knows that his countrymen are this close to redemption. They're this close to freedom, but that their hearts are still far from God. He knows that the 70 years, that they're almost up. But he also knows that God may yet prolong it if the people do not respond to Him in repentance and seek forgiveness. And so, on behalf of the people, Daniel prays. What does he pray? Beginning in verse 4. And I prayed, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. And I said, O Lord, Great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled. Even by departing from Your precepts and Your judgments, neither have we heeded Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in Your name to our kings and to our princes and to our fathers and to all the people of the land. O oh Lord, righteousness belongs to You, but to us, the shame of face. As it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which You have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against You. O oh Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings 
our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against You. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against Him. I'm teaching my, uh, my wife and I are teaching our daughter how to uh, uh, learn the alphabet, you know, A through Z, and she loves the letter M for Mallory. And uh, she's, she's watching Bennett, and Bennett's starting to write his name a little bit. Little by little, he's getting all his letters down, and he's, he's, we, got a, we got a nice view of his name. It's about this long on the refrigerator, so he makes very big letters. Um, but Mallory, start, she's starting to write an M. And we're just amazed how she can do it. And my wife always says, okay, Mallory. And she gets the crayon or or the color. And and she says, okay. And she looks at Mama and Mama says, ready? Up, down, up, down. Up, down, up, down. For an M. And Mallory's getting it. She's, She's starting to say it to herself. Up, down, up, down. As you look at this portion of Scripture, there's something that's very noticeable. You have an up-down, up-down prayer from Daniel, don't you? How does it unfold? How does, this, how does this prayer, what does it look like? Notice how Daniel begins. He has a seesaw kind of moment from verses 4 to verse 9. At first, in verse 4, he goes up. He says, the first thing first, I'm going to praise the Lord. O Lord, great and awesome God, verse 4, who keeps His covenant and His mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commands. Daniel starts up. He starts high. He lifts his eyes. And he calls upon the Lord. But then he comes down in verse 5 and he says, look at us, Lord. We have sinned. We've committed iniquity. We've done wickedly. We've rebelled. Even departed from Your precepts, Your judgments. We haven't heeded Your servants, the prophets, who have spoken to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. So he's gone from praising God to speaking about his situation. And then he goes back up again. O Lord, but righteousness belongs to You. Then he comes back down. But disgrace to the people. But to us, shame of face. An open shame. As it is this day, the men of Judah, Jerusalem, and all of Israel, whether they're in Jerusalem or whether they've been scattered abroad, they've been unfaithful. Verse 8, Lord, to us belongs shame of face to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we've sinned against You. Up, down, up, down, and then up in verse 9. To the Lord though, to the Lord our God belongs mercy. Forgiveness, though we've rebelled against Him. Why do I bring this up? Why do I bring up such a simple um, mode of prayer? The dialectic within Daniel's prayer, the up-down, up-down, the give and the take, that dialectic is a very helpful model in prayer. For our prayers are to be both about God and about us. Jesus Himself demonstrated this in the Lord's Prayer. Think about the Lord's Prayer for a minute. In Matthew chapter 6, how did He begin? He said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He started up. But then He went down. And He said, Give us, us, this day, our daily bread. 
And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Then he went down and he said, but we have, we have needs. We have petitions. We have requests of You, Lord. But it doesn't end there. He goes back up in the Lord's Prayer and he says, for Yours, God, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You see, friends, this dialectic model of prayer in Scripture is replete all throughout the Word. It is a helpful model for prayer. And it is, um, it is spawned off many, uh, you know, many popular ideas for how we ought to pray. In fact, there's one popular acronym that many of you may know. It's called the Acts of Prayer. And I want to share it with you if you don't know it. It's a very helpful one. The Acts, A-C-T-S. A begins for adoration. The first thing we need to do in prayer is to adore the Lord. To worship the Lord. We need to lift up our, our voice to Him and cry out to Him and praise Him for who He is and what He's done. Because no matter what we're going through, He deserves our very best. The words of our lips. The praises that we can give Him. But then comes C. Confession. Up, down. Lord, we have sinned. We've done wrong. We've not been... Um, becoming of You. We've not acted like we ought. And we're sorry. Then comes thanksgiving. But God, You are a great God. And You are a merciful God. And You are an ever-patient God. Long-suffering with me. No matter how many times I commit that sin, You wait and wait and wait. And still yet, You want to bless me. And so knowing that, I come to S. I supplicate. I request. I petition you. Supplication is the S. I cry out to you because I know, A, you are worthy of my praise. That even though C, I've confessed my sin, D, I can give thanks that you are a God who understands and who is patient with me. And so I can come to you and bring my petitions. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, the acts of prayer. How many of you have heard that before? Okay, about half of us. That's good. Um, I've, I've known it probably since I was a teenager. I'll be honest though, I, I, sometimes I fail to use this. Sometimes I fail to use such a simple model for prayer, which is exemplified in the book of Daniel chapter 9, which is exemplified in the Lord's Prayer in part. This, this dialectic, this back and forth between the Lord and us. The Lord and us. If this model is helpful to you, then I urge you to use it. If you keep a prayer journal, jot down an entry under each category per day. The give and take method of prayer. Your relationship with God is bound to grow if you do this. If you're looking to get more intimate with Him, then this is a way to do it. Is it not? Consider that give and take relationship that you have with your spouse, that you have with your mother and father, that you have with a brother or sister, that you have with a friend, that same give and take is how we ought to be communicating with the Lord in prayer. I hope that you'll take some of these methods to heart. But let's not lose ourselves in methods and in techniques. I don't want you to miss the content of Daniel's prayer, for it is a powerful one. Remember why Daniel's praying. He's praying because he knows that the time of the 70 years is almost up. 
And so how does he begin his prayer? He appeals to God's covenantal mercy. He appeals to God reminding Him that He is the one who keeps His promise. Verse 4, And I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession, and I said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments. The first thing Daniel appeals to is the covenant of God. The promise of God. And why? Because he knows that even though those 70 years are almost up, that the people of Israel haven't changed much yet. The, the people of Israel, they were sent into exile because of their sin. And Daniel's concerned that not a lot has changed. And so he's, in effect, reminding the Lord, Lord, You are a God of great promise. You are a God of great covenant. And I know that my, my people, my countrymen, I know, I know they don't deserve Your mercy. And so he says it in verse 5, We have sinned. We've committed iniquity. We've done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from Your precepts and Your judgments. <coughs> Neither have we heeded Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in Your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. Here Daniel is, what is he doing? He's, he's praying on behalf of everyone. You know, a lot of times, uh, you know, Ray stood up here today and others, other elders and other um, people of the church come and they pray. What are they praying for? They're praying on behalf of the whole church, right? When we come to the microphone to pray, we're praying on behalf of the whole church. We're calling upon the Lord as a corporate body. And here Daniel is confessing not necessarily private sin, but the sin of His people. The sin of Israel. The sin of His brothers and sisters, of His countrymen. He was personalizing it for His people in an effort to identify with them, to recognize before the Lord that I stand with my people as bad as they've been. I'm, I'm a representative of them. You know, as I was reading verses 5 and 6, I couldn't help but personalizing it for myself. I mean, here, here Daniel is, uh, you know, he's thinking of his country, right? Of his people, Israel, Israel, Israel. That's his focus. And naturally it is. But when you and I read this, um, you know, sometimes we get caught up in the, well, okay, that just pertains to Israel. But really, if you were to personalize it today, I don't think it'd be a far cry from our situation here in the United States. America has sinned, committed iniquity. America has done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. America has not heeded your servants, maybe the preachers, the teachers, the pastors, the elders, who speak your name to, not the king, to our president, not the... Um, Not the princes, but to the elected officials, to the governors, to the fathers, to the people of this land. Daniel's praying this 2,500 years ago. And if I substitute Israel for the United States, or for quite many, many other countries today, it seems that the prayer is just apropos, is it not? We're in a mess these days. 
We're in a moral mess. We're in a spiritual mess. We're in an economic mess. Just the other day, my wife and I, we were, we were, we were laughing because um, we were thinking of this story that we remember at the start of the recession. At the start of this recession, so what was that? About 2007? About-ish? Okay? At the start of the recession in the United States, in 2007, um, we, we recall that uh, you know, many people, many people, it, it, no one was immune to this, many people were spending rapidly, right? We were buying up homes, we were buying up cars, we were buying up things that we had no business buying. All of us are guilty of that. But there was one situation in particular where we saw a family uh, that we knew of, not here, they purchased this huge vehicle, this gorgeous, very expensive, way, way too expensive vehicle. I'm not going to say what it was. And, uh, okay, it was a Cadillac Escalade. You guys ever seen those Cadillac Escalades? Okay, those are very nice vehicles. And if you have an Escalade, I'm not here to offend you. But not only did they get the Escalade, they got the highest of the highest of the highest model. It had like gold-plated rims, we're talking, alright? You seen one of those Escalades? A few of you, okay. So there's this Escalade they bought. Exorbitant price. Even an exorbitant interest rate. But it didn't matter. Because they could handle the monthly payment. Business was good. Money was good. It wasn't a year later, one year later, that that same family was having to turn in their car, to turn in the Escalade, for a failure to make their payments due to a change in the economy. And as the time neared for them to turn over the car, um, we heard them complaining and grumbling. They were grumbling about how high highly priced the car was and about how ridiculous the interest rate had been. They were complaining and grumbling how the dealership had ripped them off. And they were blaming the dealership and the company for their own economic overreach. And I thought to myself, amazing. That's amazing. Here they were one year ago showing off the greatest purchase they'd ever made. And not 12 months later, they were ripping the very people who had sold it to them. They were ripping the very company and dealership saying, what a ridiculous price. What a ridiculous interest rate that was. And I think to myself, that's, that's shameful. The Bible says, as much as it depends upon you, hey, pay your debts. Take ownership when you make a mistake. Don't shift blame. Don't try to cheat another. You might say, well, but pastor, look at all the banks and look at all those giant corporations. Are they not cheating us? Probably. Probably. But you know what? There's someone who's going to take care of that. And it's not you. It's the Lord. The Lord's going to take care of it. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. So you concentrate on yourself on your own sin, on your own overreach, on how you failed to pay heed to God's Word, on His Spirit's guiding, to the teaching and counsel of a pastor, of an elder, you hold yourself accountable. Here we are, four years into a recession. All of us have been pinching the belt. But some of us are going to start blame shifting. And you're going to start to see that blame shifting increase in time. 
People aren't going to take responsibility for themselves. They're not going to take responsibility to even make deeper cuts, more painful cuts that all of us may need to make one day. I think the Bible would have us do whatever it took on our end to live honorably. To not sit there worrying about who's cheated us. To leave that in the hands of the Lord. Daniel was not interested in shifting blame in verses 5 and 6. He was not interested in shirking off the responsibility and saying, well, God, there was a lot of excuses. There was a lot of idolatry at the time. And the people, they just kind of fell into it. You know, we've been there so long, two or three generations, and we, we had children there. And, you know, God, those Babylonians, they were, they were kind of fun to hang out with. And so we just kind of adopted their gods and their religion and their way of life. Do you hear that from Daniel? No. You hear him resolute saying, we take responsibility. He says, I take responsibility for my people. Here, Daniel, a holy man, saying on behalf of the people, I want to say to you, God, we are sinners. We've committed iniquity. We've done wickedly. We've rebelled. Verse 7, But, O Lord, righteousness belongs to You. To us, the shame of face, as it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all of Israel, those near and far, in all the countries to which You've driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against You, O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we've sinned against You. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we've rebelled against Him. While God, You are righteous, we are shameful. Twice Daniel says that to Him belongs shame of face to His people. And not just to Him, but to the kings, to the princes, to the fathers, to those who were to lead Israel, to be the guides of Israel, to be the wise men of Israel. And so also we might say the same of our nation. Shame to us. Shame to our leaders as well who have guided us down this path. How have we acted shamefully before God? What are you doing now that is shameful? What are you doing at work that is shameful? What are you doing at home that is shameful? What are you doing behind closed doors that is shameful? Daniel, the Word of the Lord here is saying, confess it. Repent of it. Don't shirk responsibility. Don't give excuses. Repent today. For Daniel tells us in verse 9 that to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Mercy and forgiveness awaits. Even though we are shamed right now. Let it be said of the people of Kos, according to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2, he says, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame not walking in craftiness, nor handling the Word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We've renounced, renounced the hidden things of shame. We will not walk craftily. We will not handle the Word of God deceptively or deceitfully. We will not just teach portions of it and Avoid the rest. We'll teach the whole counsel of God. We'll open this whole book and say, Lord, show us. Where are we lacking? 
We are lacking. I am lacking. And if I don't know it, it's because I don't know this well enough. Where are you lacking? Where are you shameful? Where can you turn to the right? Daniel continues in verse 10. He writes this, We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His laws, which He set before us by His servants the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed Your law and has departed so as not to obey Your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against Him. And He has confirmed His words which He spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster for under the whole heaven such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. Verse 13, As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquity and understand Your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which He does, though we have not obeyed His voice. What about this curse? The curse that Daniel mentions in verse 11 is a reference to the Law of Moses. Um, You may or may not be aware of this, but in the Law of Moses, toward, toward the very end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, he sat the people down and he said, look, I've given you all these laws. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laws. I've given you all these laws. But now let me tell you what are the consequences if you disobey the Lord. Let me share with you the curses that the Lord will bring upon the people of Israel if you disobey Him. And Moses shared those curses in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28. One such curse is going to be very familiar to us. Notice verse 49. It says, The Lord will bring a nation against you, Israel, from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly, nor show favor to the young, and they shall eat the increase of your livestock, the produce of your land, until you are destroyed. They shall not leave your grain or your new wine, or your oil, or the increase of your cattle, or the offspring of your flocks until they have destroyed you. Daniel is simply recognizing what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 28. Moses said, look, if you want to disobey, if you want to persist in stubbornness, if you want to continually turn away from the Lord, there will be consequences. And from Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, all the way to the end of the chapter, he lists, he lists these many, many consequences that would come upon the people if they disobeyed. And Daniel is simply recognizing this as one of the consequences. When Israel sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned, God brought the curses of Deuteronomy 28 upon her just as He said He would. But thankfully, we're not a part. We as a people are not under the law of Moses. We're under a different kind of law. We're under a new covenant. The blood of Jesus. And in Christ, we are free 
from the curses mentioned in Deuteronomy 28. None of the curses mentioned in Deuteronomy 28 apply to us today because we're not under the law of Moses. We're under the law of grace. We're under the person of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that there's no consequences for sin. Read Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, it it speaks of God as a father, just like a human father. He'll correct you when needed. He'll chasten you when needed. He'll discipline you when needed. So if your life, if your life is unsettled, if you are restless and stressed, if you are frequently on edge, angry, frustrated, anxious, out of sorts, it could well be that the Lord is disciplining you, chastening you, trying to get your attention. I've shared with you, um, I've shared with some of you um, privately, and I believe it's still in the bulletin, on our prayer request that um, this has probably been the most difficult year for my family. Uh, We're dealing with multiple crises in our family, one of which in particular has caused me a great deal of stress and grief on my extended family. And a few days pass, very few days pass, that I don't have a pit of anxiety in my stomach as I think about these crises. These, uh, these family disasters, if you will, and we all have them, um, has been kept at the forefront of my mind for many, many months now. I've been relentlessly um, nagging at me. You see what Daniel says in verse 14? Daniel said, Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which He does, though we have not obeyed His voice. Reminds me that God will keep chastening. He will keep refining. He will keep disciplining as long as we need it. I know the Lord wants me to let go of my anxiety about my family but I'm fighting him on it. My wife can attest to that. I don't want to let go. Neil is one who solves problems. Neil is one who uh, brings solutions. And when Neil can't bring a solution, it really irks him. Anybody identify with that? When I can't solve a crisis, or a disaster. It troubles me to no end. And I have no doubt that God is leaving this anxiety in me and this grief in me because I'm trying to hold on to it unnecessarily. And so I ask you, what aspect of your life is unsettled? Where are you restless, stressed, angry, bitter, Could it be that the Lord is trying to teach you something? And sometimes you don't even want to learn the lesson. I know. You you say you do. Yes, Lord, teach me. But in your heart of hearts, you don't want to let go. You don't want the Lord to reach in and yank you out. 
But that's just what He does sometimes. Notice verse 15. And now, O Lord our God, who brought Your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made Yourself a name, as it is this day, we have sinned. We've done wickedly. O Lord, according to all Your righteousness, I pray, let Your anger and Your fury be turned away from Your city Jerusalem, Your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and Your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of Your servant and His supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause Your face to shine on Your sanctuary, which is desolate. God reached into Egypt and He pulled out, He yanked out a grumbling and a complaining people. So also, Daniel prays that God would reach into Babylon and yank out the children of Israel despite their grumbling, despite their complaining, despite their sin, despite their iniquity. He said, stick to your promise, Lord. Seventy years, pull us out. We don't deserve it. Pull us out. I know we've sinned. We've done wickedly, verse 15. And so not because of us, but because of Your righteousness, Lord, let Your anger, let Your fury be turned. Daniel says, don't do it for us, for we certainly don't deserve it. But show mercy for Your sake, for Your name's sake, and cause Your face to shine again on Your sanctuary, the temple that is now desolate and lying in ruins. You see, Daniel knew better than to appeal to the people's hearts. Because they were stubborn. They were stiff-necked. And so instead, he appeals to God's heart. A heart that is full of mercy and love. We conclude in verse 18 and 19. Oh my God, Daniel writes, Oh my God, incline, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolations and the city which is called by Your name. For we do not present our supplications before You because of our righteous deeds. There are none. But because of Your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for Your own sake, my God. For Your city and Your people are called by Your name. I cling tightly to the words of verse 18. I do not present my supplication, my petitions, my requests, before You, because I'm good, far be it from that. No, I pray, I call out to God because I know that He is a great and merciful God. All that we are is because of the mercy of Christ. In and of ourselves, we are but empty vessels. But because of the Lord's mercy, we have hope. And so when we pray, we don't appeal to our own righteousness. It's true that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, but the righteous man doesn't appeal to his own righteousness to get his prayers answered. We appeal to the mercy of God. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. A plea. A cry for help. Daniel knows the exile. The slavery is almost over. But he knows the people aren't ready to break off the chains just yet. And so he cries out, O Lord, hear! O Lord, forgive! O Lord, listen and act! The time of slavery is almost over. And you may feel like me. You might be clinging on to that old, comfortable garment 
of anxiety, of fear, of stress, of anger, of lust. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. You may not even know how to pray anymore. You may not even know what to pray for. You may not even be sure that you want your prayer even answered because you like that comfort of that anxiety in your pit. And so we instead cry out, Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen. Act. I want uh, each of us to just take a moment right now. Take a few minutes in quiet prayer. I want you to adore the Lord for a few moments. To confess your sin to Him. To give thanksgiving for His grace and mercy. And to petition Him. To supplicate. And to ask Him to bless you. To do good things in your life. Sometimes we don't even know what to pray for. That's okay. The Holy Spirit's praying for you even when you don't even know it. But right now, I want you to take a moment and just call upon the Lord. Call upon Him to hear you, to forgive you, to listen, to act. Take a few moments in quiet prayer right now. Great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and His mercy with those who love Him, with those who keep His commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity. We've done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from Your precepts and Your judgments. Neither have we heeded Your servants, the prophets, pastors, elders, teachers, who speak in Your name to our kings, our presidents, our elected officials, our governors, our leaders. O Lord, righteousness belongs to You, but to us, shame of face, because we've sinned against You. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against Him. We've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His laws. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which He does, though we have not obeyed His voice. But now, O Lord our God, who brought Your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made Yourself a name as it is this day. We've sinned. We've done wickedly. But, O Lord, according to all Your righteousness, I pray, let Your anger and Your fury be turned away. Now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of Your servant and His supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause Your face to shine again on Your sanctuary. O oh my God, incline Your ear and hear. Open Your eyes and see. We do not present our supplications because of our righteous deeds, but because of Your great mercies. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen 
and act. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. In Christ our Lord's name we pray. Amen.